So we love talking about God's love, right? Then let's see what the Bible says about it. Once again, this is Dose of Truth, the place where we talk about life, glorify God, and enjoy Him forever. And I just have one question for you right now. What's the first thing you think of when you hear the word God or you hear the name of God? If your answer is love, then yay, that's pretty much Christianity 101. I mean, we all love talking about the love of God. I love talking about the love of God. And why wouldn't we want to talk about the love of God? I mean, the Bible pretty much has a lot of content regarding the love of God. Um, 1 John 4, 8 says that God is love. John three sixteen says that for God so loved the world. Thus saith the Lord in the book of Jeremiah, I have loved you with an everlasting love. But here's a follow-up question. What exactly makes God's love special? I love me. My parents love me. My friends love me. Why would I need the love of God then? Well, I think the only way we can appreciate something that good and something that valuable is that if we view it or look at it in light of its antithesis, which is, well, God's wrath. Because, yeah, we can only appreciate the good in light of the bad. And I guess it also goes without saying that no study on the love of God, or the character of God even, would be complete without coming in contact with His wrath. Because it's only by having a proper understanding of what God's wrath is and why He's angry do we actually get to appreciate why he loves us in the first place? So without further ado, let's dissect the wrath of God to further appreciate the love of God. So why is God angry in the first place? Well, there are three elements as to why God is angry. Um, there are three elements to God's wrath, rather. First and foremost is God's law. I mean, if God's gotta be angry, then he has to have a standard by which he is angry. And yeah, his law just happened to be a standard. Because it's pretty much the standard upon what is good, just, and moral. I mean, you can pretty much say that God's law is an extension of his character. And then that's where the second element of God's wrath comes in, which is pretty much our sinful nature. And keep in mind, sin is pretty much in our natural wiring, natural way of living. That's why it's called a sinful nature but what is sin first and foremost well sin is basically rebellion against god it's breaking god's law um in legal terms it's a crime against god and here's the thing about that um we all rebel against god regardless of frequency and intensity if we're gonna look at romans three twenty three, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of god we pretty much rebel against god and we might not even be aware that we already are. Our sins are pretty much a very serious issue in God's eyes. And I guess the reason why we don't see it as serious as such is that is because we don't consider this nature as our, of ours as often as we should. And I think we have three false mindsets to blame for that. 
um, first and foremost is that mindset wherein we either consciously or subconsciously tell, tell ourselves as long as I'm not a corrupt politician, as long as I'm not a murderer, as long as I'm not a drug dealer, as long as I'm not as bad as the other person, I'm a good person. To some extent, sure, you have a point. I mean, some crimes are more serious than other crimes. But, alright, I mean, let's run a short analysis on all of us right now. Have you ever thought bad thoughts about other people? Have you ever looked at another person lustfully? Have you ever called someone a fool in your heart? Or have you ever called someone stupid in your heart? Well, those might seem light, but if in any of those questions you've answered yes, then you're pretty much guilty of sin because first and foremost, sin is not a category, it's a trajectory. You're pretty much moving away from God. It's still a rebellion against God. And to consider the gravity of those questions remember that jesus himself said that if you pretty much hate someone in your heart you're as guilty as murdering that person already if you think lustful thoughts in your mind you're pretty much as guilty as an adulterer already you can pretty much dive deeper into the gravity of sin by examining the first three chapters of the book of romans because what does paul actually do in the first three chapters of the book of romans well he was pretty much just spitting out condemnation and he starts off by saying woe to you person of immorality for you have exchanged the things that are of God for the things that are not of God you have exchanged righteousness you've exchanged goodness you've exchanged morality for stuff that are unrighteous immoral and evil and you can just imagine the modern day person who lives off of morality you can pretty much just imagine the moralist applauding Paul saying good job Paul they deserve the condemnation the murderer deserves the condemnation the rapist deserves the condemnation we don't do the things that they do and they should be condemned for doing the things that they do and what how does Paul respond to that Paul turns to them and says woe to you for you teach one thing and you do another you say one thing and you do another I mean having a sense of morality that's great honestly But if we're going to be honest with ourselves, how many of us can actually acknowledge that even our own standards of morality we can't keep perfectly? So if our own standards of morality we can't keep perfectly, what more the standard of morality that God wants us to uphold? And you can pretty much just imagine how the religious would respond to that. Bravo, Paul said just as a man of God would say it. And how does Paul respond to that? He turns to the religious and says, Woe to you, for the very law that you teach you cannot even keep. So yeah, the heathen is condemned, the moral is condemned, the religious is condemned, and Paul drives the final nail on the coffin by saying, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Simply put, He's pretty much telling all of mankind through the book of Romans, or at least for the first few chapters of it, that, yeah, maybe you're not as good as you think you are. I'm not as good as I think I am. But despite this, another way we tend to downplay our sinful nature is by telling ourselves, God is a forgiving God anyway. He's good, and He's forgiving. I mean, yes, it's 
true. I mean, he is a God of forgiveness. He is a God of goodness. But he's also a God of justice. It's like a father who's a judge having to sentence his son to prison because he found his son guilty of committing, for example, theft. Of course, he's going to do something about it. He's not, he's not going to pervert his own justice by any means necessary. Lastly, we tend to downplay our sinful nature by whether consciously or, un- or unconsciously telling ourselves, and I've heard this so many times before, yeah, I may have made mistakes here and there, I may have sinned here and there, but hey, I can make up for it by doing good works. In theory, it sounds correct, right? I mean, you do something wrong, you make up for it. But imagine saying something like that in court. For example, let's say that the judge finds you guilty of theft in court. Can you respond with something like, yeah, I may have committed theft, but hey, I helped an old lady cross the street. I helped my brother with his homework. I donated to charity. I'm a good person. I think I don't deserve this penalty. So what if you did those stuff, though? Um, Theft is theft, and theft has to be met with the penalties of, well, theft. And the same principle follows. Sin is sin, and sin has to be met with the penalties of sin. Which brings us to the third element of God's wrath, which is his justice. Um, Because his laws were broken, he makes deliberate judgments to condemn sin, just as a judge brings deliberate judgment to give the doer of the crime what is due. Like, there was this one time in our country where there was this certain someone who he well he knew he had covid and despite knowing he had covid he pretty much went against the quarantining principles that were imposed in the early days of the pandemic he basically went to a hospital knowing he had covid and he didn't even adhere to the quarantining principles and just well acted as if everything was normal he ended up putting everyone around him in danger and because of that, the whole country had an outcry when news broke out that it happened. That hey, this guy has to be penalized for doing something wrong. But then, all of a sudden, I don't know how, I don't know why, he was just let go. Like, there wasn't even anything imposed on him. And because of that, the country had an outcry. Like, how could the government let someone like this go this guy should have been punished and it just makes sense um i understand their their fury i understood their frustration but the same thing could actually apply to god um what kind of god would god be if he just quote unquote forgave people let people in heaven without even having them pay for this in Sin has to be paid for with justice, and there's not going to be any justice if a quote-unquote just judge leaves a crime, or in God's terms, leaves a sin unpunished. So yeah, it pretty much begs the question then, how does God respond to sin? How does God treat sin? What are the manifestations of God's wrath because of sin? Um, when it comes to God manifesting his wrath, it's manifest in a lot of ways, actually. It's manifest in the here and now. It's also going to be manifested when we die. But in terms of the here and now, one of the ways God manifests his wrath to mankind is 
through this thing called the consequential wrath of God. I mean, if you examine verses such as Psalm 107 verse 17 where it says, Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquity, they suffered affliction. It pretty much has this implication where God really will allow you to go through the consequences of your actions if he deems it fit. I mean, it's not necessarily a judgment. It's not necessarily a condemnation. If anything, it can be seen as a form of discipline to some people. A good example of this would be how he allowed David to go through the consequences of his actions when he committed adultery with Bathsheba, killing her husband in the process. And more than a form of discipline, it can actually also be seen as a call to repentance, a call to come back to him. But here's the thing. um, Should we have hardened hearts? And should we be stubborn in our own ways? And we don't want to come back to God. Another way he responds to that is, and another manifestation, rather, of his wrath towards that is this thing called the abandonment wrath of God. It's pretty much when God allows people to be handed over to the things they crave for. Hence the term abandonment. He quote-unquote abandons you to the desires of your heart. I mean, in Jeremiah eleven fourteen, what did God tell Jeremiah when Israel was being too stubborn? He pretty much told Jeremiah not to waste his time praying for Israel since, well, they won't listen. In Hosea four seventeen, what did God tell Hosea with respect to Ephraim, who was dealing with major idolatry problems. God pretty much told Hosea that Ephraim was joined to their idols. Leave them alone. Okay, so you might be wondering, well, that's the Old Testament. We're in the new covenant of grace right now. But that principle never really left now, did it? I mean, if you examine the book of Romans, specifically Romans chapter 1, verse 24, it says there that God gave people over to the desires of their hearts. He pretty much allowed their desires to rule over them and be their God instead of God himself. And really, I mean, the scariest punishment we could actually ever get from God is if he doesn't punish us at all. I mean, if he doesn't punish us at all, it could actually mean that he abandoned you to the desires of your heart already. Maybe he allowed wealth to be your God now. Maybe he allowed entertainment to be your God now. Maybe he allowed pornography to be your God now. I don't know. I mean, there's a very striking quote by C.S. Lewis that I kind of like, where he says that there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God with a humbled, bowed knee, your will be done, and those who turn their backs from God and to whom God says in the end, your will be done. And sure, it may sound good to have that kind of autonomy. I mean, you get to decide everything for yourself. Look at all that freedom. It's so tempting to dive into. But here's the catch, though. A lifetime spent deliberately, keyword, deliberately, apart from God would also entail an eternity spent away from God as well. So yeah, we really ought to be careful how we position ourselves before God. Because yeah, he might just give you a shove towards that direction. And this brings us to the third manifestation of God's wrath, which is the eternal wrath of God. 
Um, in the long run, the verdict over sin is pretty much separation from God. Um, we were talking about God's justice a while ago as he responds to the sinful nature of man, and this is pretty much it. But the death being talked about in Romans 6.23, where it says there that the wages of sin is death, isn't, isn't actually the physical death, or is not just the physical death, rather. But it also actually refers to something worse, which is hell. And that's the scary part about God's wrath. I mean, when we talk about human wrath, for example, we usually associate human wrath and how we act in our human wrath with ideas such as, oh, he's just reacting out of emotion. I mean, that's all emotion, right? Or is just that me? I hope not. But the thing about God is he's not just acting out of emotion. All of that is very deliberate. And if you're not found justified before God, if you're found guilty before God, God's not going to have any reasons to hesitate sending you to hell because that's just justice. And it even gets scarier once you realize that that's exactly what you deserve. That's exactly what I deserve. Scary. So yeah, just to recap what we've discussed so far on the wrath of God, we've all sinned against God, we've rebelled against God, because of that God's angry, and because of that God pretty much responds by dishing out his wrath upon us, and the final verdict or the final manifestation of God's wrath is pretty much eternity in hell, where we burn and suffer forever, and there's really nothing we can do to abate God's wrath from us forever. In short, well, see you in hell. <laughs> Alright, so at this point, you're probably wondering and thinking, Hey, I thought you were going to discuss the love of God. But all I've heard so far is that I'm a very sinful person and that God is angry. I mean, sure, though God is a wrathful God, though he's a God of wrath, he's pretty much also and still a God of love and... If anything, he actually doesn't take pleasure in subjecting his people to wrath. You have verses such as 1 Timothy 2 verse 4, which he says that he wishes that everyone would be saved. You have passages in Ezekiel 18 and 33, which he says that he takes no pleasure in the demise of the wicked, that they may turn from their sinful ways. You have verses such as 2 Peter 3 verse 9, where he states that he doesn't wish for anything, or anyone rather, he doesn't wish for anyone to perish. I mean, if anything, it's actually his love and justice which motivates his wrath towards sin. I mean, he would want nothing but perfection for his creation, right? Just as a father would want nothing less than the best for his own child. I mean, he tolerates no violation due to sin, just as a father would tolerate no rebellion due to the selfish nature of his child for example but here's the thing he can't just leave sin go unpunished either if ever God would do that then God himself would be a violator of his own law and there's no justice in that so this then leads us to the most comforting manifestation of God's wrath which is the redemptive wrath of God. In a sense, you can call this the satisfaction to God's wrath as well, because this is pretty much the wrath that God the Father pours on God the Son, pours on Jesus Christ, 
for our sake. Like, if you examine verses just such as Romans 5 verse 8 where it says there that God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It pretty much kind of shows that God's wrath and God's love both find their harmony on the cross. And we actually have three of the most beautiful doctrines that actually explain and describe our newfound relationship with God because of God's redemptive wrath. And one of those doctrines is the doctrine of substitution. Um, in a nutshell, substitution is pretty much when person A is punished for the crimes of person B. So you can pretty much say that person A became the substitute for person B. And in a sense, yeah, it's the same principle with Christ. Christ pretty much became our representative and substitute to bear the weight of our sin against God. Like, everything you've done wrong, past, present, and future, yeah, it was pretty much blamed on Jesus already. And because he's now carrying the weight of your sin on your behalf, he's, bla- he's being blamed on your behalf he can pretty much also be punished on your behalf. Tim Keller put it beautifully when he said that the Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, yet I am so loved and so valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. And that's pretty much the beauty of substitution. He took your blame. Imagine you're in court, you were found guilty of theft, you were sentenced to a lifetime of imprisonment. I don't know, is that just? I hope not. That's just scary. Anyways, so yeah, you were sentenced to a lifetime of imprisonment. And then there's this guy who walks up to court and says, no, 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 I'm going to take the heat for it. Like, punish me on his behalf. So yeah. In a sense, that person was blamed on your behalf. Like, everything you did wrong was blamed on this person. Which pretty much leads us to the next beautiful doctrine, which is the doctrine of justification. So what is justification? Well, to be declared justified, to be legally declared justified, is also to be declared innocent from breaking the law. It's as if you have no criminal records whatsoever. And in a sense, it concerns itself of this quote-unquote great exchange that took place wherein our record of sin, our record of rebellion, our record of disobedience was imputed on Jesus and his clean, perfect, sinless record has been imputed on us instead. And because our records speak now as if we haven't done anything wrong against God or sinned against God, God can now pretty much look at us as if we didn't do anything wrong, as if we were blameless and innocent before him. And that's just so beautiful considering all the things I've done in the past. Like, man, I'm so happy that God can overlook and forgive every single one of them because of what Jesus did. And God doesn't just even stop there. I mean, he could have stopped there, but... He doesn't just see you as someone who's innocent and blameless, but he actually sees you as something more, which pretty much leads us to my third favorite doctrine when it comes to salvation, which is pretty much the doctrine of adoption. 
and this doctrine comes after receiving Jesus' substitutionary atonement, substitutionary offering, and after which he then gives you the right not just to be called innocent and blameless, but gives you the right to be called a child of God. And that's like the most honorable title one could ever have. I'm part of God's family. I'm a child of God. And yeah, he doesn't look at you as someone who's just innocent, someone who's just blameless, but he looks at you as someone who's part of his spiritual family. But these doctrines aren't just dispensed for everyone to receive just like that. I mean, sure, the call is open indeed for everybody. Anyone can respond to that call. But this gift of relationship with him, this gift of being forgiven, this gift of being... These gifts, I mean, just like any other gift, are gifts that have to be received. And until you make that decision to receive him, to put your faith in him, and to actually believe that what he's done for you is sufficient for you to have a relationship with God again, then he won't just call you his own child by any means. He won't just take the heat for you unless you receive him, and he's not going to forgive you unless you run to him. But he will be waiting for you, constantly chasing you, and just, well, yeah, wait for you until you turn to him, calling you towards him. But then again, unless you respond to God's call to come to him, repent of your sin, and believe that what he's done for you is indeed sufficient so you can have a relationship with God again, then he's not going to coerce you into anything. He's not going to force you into anything. So, yeah, I mean, the wrath of God really does hit hard. I mean, there are deeper aspects to the wrath of God that I wish I could also discuss with you. I mean, I might discuss it sometime later, sure. But, it, yeah, I mean, there are really things we can learn from the wrath of God. And um, I was reading this article by unlockingthebible.org. It's a really good site. You guys should check it out. And there was an article there regarding one of Jesus' last statements, which went along the lines of, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And reading that, it actually helped me meditate on God's wrath in a very healthy sense, because there really are things that we can learn from the wrath of God, especially from that moment Jesus shouted that line. And one of the insights from that article says that we ought to see sin for what it really is, and learn to hate it. I mean, let's face it, sin does feel good, right? It's a, it's attractive. It's pleasurable. It gives us, you know, some sort of delight. It gives us some sort of joy, even though we know it to be wrong. But that's the thing about morality, right? I mean, it can teach you what sin is. It can teach you that it's wrong. It can teach you that you're not supposed to do it. But it won't necessarily teach you to hate it. I mean, notice this. Um, when push comes to shove and you have your back against the wall and you're craving for just even a shred of comfort, when all you have are moral restraints, you're going to find yourself coming back to the very sin struggle you thought you've already stopped doing. Because it's only by experiencing God's love and loving God in return do we actually develop an affection for what God 
loves and a disdain for what God hates. I like how Charles Spurgeon put it one time. Um, he once said that if Christ has died for me, then I cannot trifle with the very evil that killed my best friend. So yeah, look at what sin has cost you. How self-destructive it can be. What it's cost others. How destructive it can be. And what it's cost Jesus, your best friend. It cost him his life. It's the very reason he was nailed on that cross in the first place. And then ask yourself this. Is there then any sin not worth abandoning on the account of him? Another insight that was mentioned in that article is that we ought to see what hell is and learn to flee it. Why should we flee from hell? Well, this is what hell is like if you don't know yet. In hell, you're in constant and conscious suffering. You're bearing the weight of your guilt. You're bearing the weight of your sin. You're also under judgment. And also, you're separated from the love of God. All of that was what Jesus went through when he was on the cross. I mean, you can even notice it from that line, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All throughout scripture, or at least the gospel accounts, Jesus has always addressed God as his father. But it's only in this account where he didn't even address God as his father. Because, yeah, there was that separation when he bore all the hells of humankind on his shoulders. And it's so scary to think to the point that he chose to bear it so that we wouldn't have to bear it ourselves. Because... In a sense, hell became as real as the cross when he was suffering on that cross. And all of our sentences to hell were pretty much poured on Jesus Christ. Now, considering that that's what hell looks like, or at least that's what a glimpse of hell looks like, wouldn't you want to run away from that, given that he's already given you a way out? given that he's loved you so much that he chose to take the hate for that already. But more than hating sin for what it is and more than just fleeing hell, we also ought to see what love is and learn to enjoy it. Because let's face it, there will be moments in our lives, especially when we feel like we're so dirty sinners, that we're going to feel like God's forsaken us that God's abandoned us. Oh, we're just that sinful. We deserve to be abandoned, right? I mean, you've pretty much felt that, right? I mean, I, I know I have. But there is comfort in remembering that on the account of you, someone already cried out that he was forsaken. So that even when you feel alone, even when I feel alone, we can pretty much know that we are never truly forsaken. He loved you so much and didn't want you to experience his wrath so that he sent his only son to experience it on your behalf. And the son loved you so much as to be pleased to experience it on your behalf. So knowing this, this can pretty much stay as head knowledge. So how exactly do we get to enjoy it? We get to enjoy it because of his resurrection. It's pretty much the final seal of God of victory that we share with him because the moment he declared that it is finished ended your striving to be in a right 
position with God, to be in right standing with God because right now, because He's won the victory for you, there's no more condemnation anymore for those who are in Christ. And if ever you find yourself stumbling again, if ever you find yourself doing something wrong again, then the proper response to, to that is come back to Him, repent. He's not going to reject you. He's not going to cast you out. He did promise that whoever whoever comes to him, he will by no means cast out. And more than that, if your good works never merited you the affections of God, what makes you think that your bad works will demerit you of those affections? And lastly, we ought to see faith for what it is and learn to use it. Remember that Christ was in total darkness, both spiritual and literal, when he cried out those painful words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If we can't see his hand move in our lives, then we can pretty much trust his character and affections. We can pretty much trust the the affections of his heart, the love of his heart. Because he pretty much already forsook Jesus on your behalf. We can trust his promise that he's never going to leave us nor forsake us. Why? Because, sure, maybe we do deserve to be forsaken. But that's the thing. He's already forsaken another on your behalf. I mean, yeah. I, I just remember this hymn that goes along the lines of, When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. Because it's ultimately that grace which allows us or which enables us to call God our Father with much confidence, without which, yeah, that's pretty much just head knowledge then. So we can pretty much be in faith that God has accepted us as his children since during those hours where Jesus, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, someone else was forsaken in your place. God let go of his hand so he can hold on to your hand whether you're aware of it or not so yeah this is personally one of the biggest reasons why god's love is very beautiful i really didn't deserve it if anything i deserve his wrath but he chose to love me anyway and this is something i love meditating about because it gives it just gives me that confidence and humility to come to god and love god in return and I hope you also had, you also learned a thing or two from the wrath of God as well. And I hope that we get to use this as we glorify God every day and enjoy God's presence all the way. See you next time.